The Catacombs of Paris by Neil Wynne Williams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Cartpoulet. The Catacombs of Paris by Neil Wynne Williams. To some people it will come as a surprise to hear that there are catacombs at Paris. The fame of the similar collection of human remains at Rome would appear to have dwarfed out of sight the wondrous quarries that stretch beneath the greater portion of southern Paris. Nevertheless, the catacombs of the French capital are a wonderful and a weird sight, and one that is open to any member of the public who makes a written application to Monsieur le Préfet de la Seine. Their historical origin is interesting, and aptly exemplifies the changes that time brings in its train. From a remote past, down to the seventeenth century, they were merely quarries when stone was drawn, and drawn to keep pace with the growth of the city above them. The natural consequence of this drain upon the vitals of the city's support was a subsidence, in 1774, which, by damaging property and bringing about numerous accidents, informed the public that someone must do something, or that nobody would be left to do anything. In 1777, a still stronger hint from below aroused the government to an activity which expanded its energy in supporting with piers and buttresses the most dangerous portions of the affected area. These works, continued from year to year, proved a fertile source of expense. In 1784 the question arose as to the disposal of the relics of mortality which were to be removed from the disused cemetery of the innocents. It was suggested that the quarries should be still further strengthened and rendered compact by their adoption as catacombs. The suggestion, met with approval, was adopted, and the transfer of the vast accumulation of bones entered upon with all due precautions. It was thus that the quarries became the garner room of the destroyer. It was thus, as the various cemeteries within the city ceased to yawn for their dead, that they were made to yield up their silent tenants. In 1786 the catacombs were solemnly consecrated. At this period the bones and skulls were being cast down on the floors of the caverns and passages in great heaps without any attempt at order or arrangement, nor was it till the year 1812 that the authorities commenced the work which has culminated in the present artistic presentment of that which once formed the framework of living thousands. Come. We will descend together as two members of the public and see a portion of this underground and silent world that extends its ramifications beneath two hundred acres of Paris. We are in possession of our permits and according to direction find ourselves at the principal entrance on the right of the Place d'Enfer Rochereau. We take our places in the queue of those about to descend. We buy candles. An obliging stranger tears off a square piece from a newspaper and hands it to us with a polite bow. The careful, courteous man. He explains to us that presently it will be useful if only les messieurs will adopt this plan of catching the droppings of a flickering candle held in the bare hand. And so saying, he triumphantly thrusts his candle with a ripping, tearing noise through the paper. The idea is good, so good that it travels along the queue and each candle soon boasts a paper guard. One o'clock strikes. 
the door guarding the entrance to ninety steps that lead to below swings open. Its harsh grating is the signal for a brisk fusillade of match-firing reports. The matches are applied to the candles. A strong odor of tallow seethes through the meadow sunshine, and through its sickly fumes we commence to slowly advance. Already the leading file has vanished within the doorway, and as we in turn approach the orifice, a dull roar pours suddenly out to meet us. Tramp, tramp, tramp. We have passed beneath the archway. We are descending the spiral of the stone staircase. The air is heavy with the clangor of ponderous footfalls, murky with candle smoke that veils with weird effect the flickering, drought-driven light. As far, and just so far, as we can see above and below us, all is in movement. Dresses, coats, candles whirl slowly, uncertainly downward. The very walls seem to writhe in the uncertain light, to mutter and to moan with inarticulate voices. Down, down, down! All are in the rock home of death. A moment's pause, a silent falls on the chattering crowd. Then, affrighted with their second sphere, they sway onward through a rocky gallery. Rock on either side of them, rock above them. Here bare and arid, there slimy with oozing water and foul growth. The passage broadens out, it narrows, and ever and ever there is the black line on the roof that marks the road. Suddenly a black shadow on the left or to the right. The eye plunges into the depth of these side roads and recoils aghast at their mysterious gloom. The lights file on. A thin glitter seems a dark gap with a flickering, broken line of light. Ah, says the guide, yes, a chain. Still, forward, the shadows to right and left grow in size. Some have a sentry silently guarding their obscurity from rash obtrusion. Where there is no sentry, there is a chain. A sudden check from in front breaks the continuity of the forward movement. We move on again, and lo! The rocks on either hand contract, change color, break out into the gruesome design of a symmetrically built wall of bones and skulls. From the level of our heads down to the level of our feet, skull rests upon skull and leans back upon the myriad bones behind. The shivering candlelight falls with an equal rays upon the formal tears, it flashes coldly upon the grinning teeth, penetrates the mortarless crannies of the wall, and ever shows bones of many shapes and curves. Now it lights up a rent in some skull, a ghastly, jagged wound which haunts one with the thought of foul murder. Anon, it shimmers with erratic play on the trickling water that, pursuing its silent way from year to year, has crusted with a smooth glass the skull beneath. Again the crowd checks. In the moment's pause you approach the wall. An earth-stained skull, perhaps larger than its comrades, centers your attention on his sunken orbits. You brood over it, are drawn to it, and as in a dream lay hands on its smooth cranium. The cold, clammy contact. Ha! How different from the warmth of a loving friend! Yet perchance this, this too, was once a friend, the lodestone of a deep, broad love. On again, once more, and this time quicker. The skulls flash past in confused lines. 
it is the dance of death. A rock shoots into view, bursts through the skulls. It is marked with black characters, which tell you that it is sometimes better to die than to live. Rock and lettering fade back into darkness, but again and again the light outlines a phrase such as Tombeau de la Révolution, Tombeau des Victimes, or a motto that sinks deep into the soul. The designs in skull and bone become more complicated. The walls become more lofty, rush from straight lines into curves, assume the form of chapels. Around and about you are skulls, skulls, skulls. Once these residues of men were even as you and I are now. Think of it, each mouldering bone was once part of a life. A life. But now, tragedy and comedy lie indifferently side by side. Riches and poverty, the great and the low, lie jaw by jaw. None too great, none too humble, to enter into death's lavish gift to the darkness that reigns in the catacombs. Their world has passed away, and the old order has given place to the new that now surges and seethes by their crumbling bones. They have been but a tide in the ocean of life, they have flowed and they have ebbed. But even as you dream or gibe, according to temperament, in one of these chapels, a faint, prolonged rustle comes stealing to the ear, swells and falls, and vanishes mysteriously as it came. What was it? The guide catches an inquiring eye, and explains, with a wealth of incisive gesture, that it is the rats moving. He makes the blood run cold with the horror of his account of those who have been lost in the catacombs and hunted to their death by the sharp teeth ruddens. He expatiates with pardonable pride on the precautions now taken by the authorities to guard against casualties of this nature, and sings his voice to a whisper as he mentions the lost hundred of 1871. He points to the dark, chain-barred passages as he tells you who and what these men were. Tis a tale that dwells in a blood-red past, a past which gave birth to the commune of seventy-one. The Germans had besieged Paris and taken it. They had entered the city as conquerors, and with their departure the humiliated, super-sensitive city was to be further outraged by its own baser passions. The National Guard had been, even during the siege, disaffected toward the government of the Republic, and with the departure of the Germans, it saw in the weakness of the government then located at Versailles its opportunity for revolt. Not having been disarmed, it possessed a brute force which gave it courage to act. It carried off the cannon to the heights of Montmartre and Belleville, under the plausible excuse of preserving them from the enemy. This was, in effect, revolt. And so Présidentière read it. He attempted the removal of the cannon on March 71. He failed, and so commenced the insurrection of the Commune and a siege of Paris. A hundred thousand National Guards, together with the desperate characters common to every great city, were the thews and the sinews of this social revolution which was directed against property and labor masters. It was initiated by working men, but in its short life of two months it was to seek the power of the devil of cruelty and to encourage to the surface of Parisian life the petroleur and petroleuse. It was to grow drunk with blood and with sottish fury 
to fire the Hôtel de Ville, the Palais de Justice, the Tuileries, the Ministry of France. It was to corrupt its own body with murderous excess, and to slay by day and by night. Within the restraining influence of the Republican army concentrated at Versailles, it stung itself like a fire-imprisoned scorpion. But the debilitated government at Versailles was recuperating. It drew the siege closer and hurled shot and shell faster and faster into the writhing city. It sent out its troops under Marshal McMahon, and with bayonet and bullet it bore down the communists, slew them without trial, without mercy, with no quarter for petroleurs or petroleuses. Ten thousand corpses lay beneath its victory. The streets and prisons were red with blood. The mark of the destroyer was on mansion and humblest of humble buildings. By the lurid light which the recollections of the commune emit, the guide's answers to a bystander that the last hundred were insurgents and part of the garrison of Fort Vanves becomes powerfully suggestive and to hear a question and there a question he makes reply of how the insurgents fled before the republican troops on the fall of Fort Vanves, and how they had rushed away from the bayonets on their track to endeavor to seek safety in the silent gloom of the catacombs. His graphic words, intensified by the environment, reconstruct the scene, painted with the vivid colors of a nightmare to the eyeballs straining to the dark mouth of the passages beyond. In thought, he takes us with the panic-stricken soldiers into the labyrinth. We feel a feverish fear of pursuit driving us further into the secretive gloom. A halt, and our laboring hearts grow calmer amidst the silence that yields no shout, no muffled footfall of pursuer. But our tortures consume faster and faster away. We must again seek light of day. Yet how? Everywhere, road across road, Silence girl by silence girl, with never a clue to the open air, to the living world above. Again panic seizes us. We run, run madly with many a stumble for life. Exhaustion finds us alone. Our comrades, gone. Our torch, guarded with trembling hand, burning low. We hear the rats gathering in their holes outside the pale of kindly, merciful light. They throw down a skull that rolls heavily to our feet. The light? Ha! It must have been awful to have died in that thick blackness with never a ray of light or hope. And we grow thankful that, as two of the public, we move on and on to the exit at the Rue d'Arrault and find there life and sunshine. End of the Catacombs of Paris